ask, have you, but I would assume that most everyone has, ever had a, a really stimulating conversation with a friend, whether that be someone in your family or, you know, it'd be a, a just a, a friend, an acquaintance, that someone you might, you might consider a, a true confidant, that you're willing to open up and, uh, so to speak, for those of us that have hair, let your hair down, uh, then uh, someone with whom you share a lot of things, maybe but a true lifelong friend and the kind of conversation you can have with that person. And hopefully that that's the kind of conversation you can have with your mate if you're married and uh, share those things that are intimate and private and personal. And uh, those kind of conversations are important and they're also very rewarding. So, Assuming that we've all had that, but uh, think about those kinds of conversations that you have, have had. I'd like to ask one more question is, how much does that reflect our prayer life? And the kind of conversations we have with our Father in Heaven. Now, it's a monologue of sorts. <laughs> uh, we, we do all the talking, and we don't really do any listening but as was mentioned in the sermonette, we think about the things we've, we've heard from God's word. But we talk to God and we pray to him and would ask then how, how exciting, how uh, stimulating is that, is that prayer? Well, this afternoon I'd like for us to review and also to examine some vital ingredients or points to a profitable and meaningful prayer that all of us need to have, and and I go through this, and some of it will be very basic uh, in terms of reviewing some of these, these these principles. But it is important that we maintain an effective prayer life. One of the keys to starting an effective prayer. It's going to be to, when you wake up in the morning, is for us to remember, for us to acknowledge and reflect on our basic inability to manage our own lives. And that is something I think all of us realize, but as we get caught up in our activities, our, our routines, all too often we just go by rote, just what seems good to us. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. This particular scripture has been mentioned several times of late, so it's very appropriate here. Because if we sincerely believe that we cannot manage our own lives, then this scripture will help us understand that and what to do about it. He says, O eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. So apart from having God's Holy Spirit, Jeremiah tells us here, that God tells us here, that we aren't able to manage our own lives. And if we sincerely believe that, recognize that each morning as we begin our day, then we're going to put ourselves in front of God on our knees and ask him for the guidance and for the help that we need. 
A couple of scriptures that we are known well. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, refers to, Paul says, to pray always. And of course, that does not mean 24 by 7, but it does mean on a regular basis to be asking for God's guidance, to turning to Him on a daily basis. Psalm 55, verse 17 talks about praying. And God said, you will hear my voice, David writes, morning, noon, and at night. So part of every day, on a regular basis, praying to God. If we understand that we do need to pray in order for life to turn out well. Over in Luke chapter 11, and I won't turn there. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 the disciples asked Christ to teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And all of us, when we first are being called of God, and praying is a learning process, and here the disciples asked Christ to teach them to pray, and he does so. Let's turn over any sermon on prayer, would probably include this, but let's turn back to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll read verses 6 through 15 in total. But first, verses 6 through 8 to begin with. Christ is speaking. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, in a secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So we're supposed to do this privately. On a daily basis, we talk to God. As much as possible, we do that privately. And then in verse 8, it says, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Just a, a comment on that. It talks about vain repetitions. Not that our prayers are not about the same thing. There are many of these things we'll discuss that we pray about every day. We don't pray about all of them every time, but many of these things we do pray about every day. We ask God to guide his work. We'll discuss that. But there are things that are important every day for us to pray, but they should not be vain. They should not be empty, just rote words we uh, we mouth or think, but we don't do the vain. We make sure there's meaning to them. In verse 8, therefore, be not like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. So here's a interesting irony to a degree, I guess, is the way I would look at it. He says to don't use vain repetitions, don't use many words, and trying to elaborate or be flowery in our conversation with God. But he does tell us over in Luke chapter 11, and I won't turn there, but in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, Christ there in a, in a parallel account, uh, from what we find here in Matthew, uh, Christ points out that God expects us to ask. He already knows everything you and I need. But he expects us to turn to him and ask, which is a, a point that being, he's making is that uh, we recognize those needs. God already knows them. Do we know them? Do we fully understand the areas in our lives and, and, and what we're doing? Do we recognize we need God's help? And we ask for these things, and he expects us to ask. 
So we go on in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 9. And in this manner, and I'll inject here that sometimes I've heard this referred to as a model prayer. I don't think it is. I, I just term it in my mind. In my, it's an outline for prayer. It's the, the kinds of things we should be praying about. But not a, not in it, we certainly we don't repeat these words. We don't say the Lord's Prayer, as it's called. Uh, that's not what, what we do. But this is an outline. And it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now we know from elsewhere in James that God does not tempt us. He said, don't lead us into temptation. Here in verse 13, God is not going to lead us into temptation. He's not going to tempt us personally. He allows us to be tempted. But he asks them to be delivered from the evil one. He gathers two phrases together that tells us that Satan is the one who tempts us. He is the one who tries to get us off track. And then he says, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We close with praising God. We open with praising God. Hallowed be his God's name. He tells us in many places how important that is to find his name holy and how we use it in our language, how we refer to him. He tells us, obviously, one of the Ten Commandments, so he does tell us in many places how important that is. So we open with prayer, talking to God and giving him praise. So these are the items, that, uh, and I'll go through some of these fairly quickly, just talking about the basics that many of us have heard many times. But here, holy is his name. So we pray of God, praise for his name. And and the name represents all that God represents, all that God is, and all his character and his righteousness and his power. And he tells us we should praise him. Now, if you're wondering what kind of things to say, how to praise him, you could pretty much open up the book of Psalms and leaf through any number of chapters, but they're pretty easy to find where God's name is praised by examples by David. I will give you just a couple of examples. In Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And I'll turn back to Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verses 9 and 10. He says, We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. Well, now we don't go to the temple, but we do kneel before God in our home, and we we know that the temple, God's Holy Spirit is in us. We are the temple of God. But he says, according to your name, O God, so is the praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. So being able to just say the kinds of things that honor God in all his capacity, his glory, his eternity, that we 
do this, we give praise to him. We think about, I think about the booklet that we have, that's seven proofs that God exists. And we can just remind ourselves as we rehearse those, not that we memorize them to the point that we just rattle them off, but think about what those seven proofs mean. Maybe in our prayer to talk about what one of those proofs means to us. The kinds of things we we read in our magazine in Tomorrow's World that are written about all the things that are explained in detail the glory of God's creation. Maybe even reading one of those articles and helping us understand just how magnificent and powerful God is. So thinking about those proofs in our life and all the things that we have come to understand. In Nehemiah chapter 9, let's turn back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. We find here, I'm not going to read all of them, but uh, in section of verses 5 through 15, we find here basically a prayer that tells us about praising God. How did, how did Nehemiah do this? Starting in verse 5, where it says, Stand up and bless the eternal your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the eternal. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God, the eternal God, who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You read on down through uh, verse 8. In verse 9, it changes. It says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. So here in this prayer, Hezekiah is rehearsing some of the things that glorify God because of all the things that he has done for his people. We can think about the same things in our, in our lives. Rehearse some of the things he has done for us so that we don't just thank God once or twice for whatever the blessings might be, whatever the healing might be, whatever the answered prayer might be. But we rehearse these things in our minds and give God praise for doing those very things. We can recall how God has delivered us much as he did in delivering Israel. And moving on to the second, second area about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in a new time, we talk about God's will being done, but certainly on earth right now, in our lives, God's will would be done in our lives, and especially in his work and according to his plan. We find over in Second Thessalonians, where Paul is talking to, writing to the Thessalonians, points out here in verses 1 and 2. It says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So he's asking the Thessalonians to 
pray for him and those that are working with him and as he travels around. On his journeys, he's asking for deliverance. He's, he said, delivered here from unreasonable men and wicked men because not everyone understands, not everyone has, has faith. And he says here that the word of the eternal or the word of the Lord may run swiftly. Now the word swiftly is in italics, but the word for run there infers to run swiftly, to, to uh, be running fast. And be glorified just as it is with you. So the whatever effects it was having on the lives of the church at Thessalonica, that we can pray that God would then do the work elsewhere in the same way, just as effectively. So we pray about God's work being done. That we would, God would inspire those that he has chosen to lead the work. Again, one of these things we pray about every day, that God would inspire protect and care for and support and just generate ideas in the minds and lives of those he's chosen to, to lead his work in order that we are doing his will here on earth and certainly in due time that will be done across the world. In First Timothy chapter 2, First Timothy chapter 2, He writes, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all, for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? Why do we pray for everyone in our society? That we may be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We just ask for God's intervention so that we can do the things that he wants us to do, not only in the work, but in our lives as well. He points out here that we live peaceable, could live a peaceable life. And we know there are times coming that that will not always be the case, but it does tell us that we should be praying for these things and asking for God to, God's will to be done. Well, what other areas do we pray for on a regular basis? Certainly for God's blessings on our, on the income. We have, we, have uh, we keep record of those that are donors, those that are co-workers, and it's certainly appropriate to ask God to bless them for the fact they've supported his work. And if their hearts are, even though they may not be members, if their hearts are in the work and God blesses them, then one would think there's going to be some additional contribution, if you will. But we can certainly pray for them. The telecast... We watch that every week, God willing, and sometimes it's just stunning, frankly, the things that are gathered together in about 24 or 25 minutes, and we pray that God would inspire all that goes into developing the telecast, but then how it's distributed and all those things that go behind, behind, if you will, that once it's recorded, what happens to it, and that we can go on. Peaceable men, again, in an area where people might not like us. So we open, ask God to open up those doors to where he wants the telecast to go out, that he'll go out and reach the people that he may be calling. We do here on a regular basis to pray about TWPs. We heard the announcement just a moment ago about the one over in, in, in uh, uh, Eastern North Carolina. 
uh, I'm not sure how to say that without seeing the word. But anyway, the, the TWPs and, and the follow-ups that go into them, that, we, that is a major part of what we're trying to do to reach individuals who are interested enough to come and hear us live in person. The articles that go into the magazines, the distribution of the magazines. Uh, we do know that in certain parts of the world, the magazines just sometimes don't get there all that well. And yet that tomorrow's world in particular, and the Living Church News for the, the members, that those are important. And we ask God to inspire the content. And again, those who read them that will respond to them. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 9 and just uh, in, in general... There are all kinds of things to to be praying about the work, and that should be certainly a portion of our prayers each day. But over in Matthew chapter 9, it's one of these uh, reminders to focus on some details once in a while that uh, we know are are out where there's a a real need. Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. So then he said to, the, to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We don't have any extra ministers. We don't have any spares. We don't have a training program like Ambassador College and the Worldwide Church of God used to have, where there were... Uh, Seniors graduating, and a number of them could be just go in as ministerial trainees or assistants, and the church was growing and expanding very rapidly. There were ministers, and enough ministers that could actually be rotated into headquarters every seven or eight or ten years for a year, a sabbatical year, for some training and additional education and just a refresher. We don't have that, that luxury today, so we should be asking God for laborers to come into his work, and not only ministers. There, you know, we do have, at, uh, over the last year, year and a half, we have added a good number of employees at headquarters because of the expansion, expanding needs in some of the departments. And so we want to have qualified people to come in and do that work fulfill that responsibility that may be there, and it's, it's lacking. And, and for most of us, that, that means if they're, if they're well-trained and uh, they have uh, successful jobs, there's a certain amount of sacrifice involved in coming to work for the church. And yet, God can see to it that those things do come to pass, and we should be praying about that. Other items, which uh, just say briefly, but what about your brethren? We send out on a regular basis, prayer request for the healing, but also in our discussions with one another, uh, especially if we're having good conversations, be aware of the needs of our of our brethren, whether it be healing if they're sick, but perhaps a trial, uh, a lost job, or simple request someone wants something, which we'll come to in just a moment that, uh, to discuss that. But we can pray about the needs of our brethren. Then it talks about daily bread, which most of us have a refrigerator that's pretty full of food. We have a pantry, and we're not necessarily preoccupied with what are we going to eat tomorrow. 
Now, we may have to worry more about that as far as just which, what, which one, which meal are we going to fix? But not that there's a lack of food. So we don't want the daily bread. But those are personal needs. And maybe in certain times in our lives, maybe daily bread would be relevant. But in general, it's talking about personal needs, about praying for our family, our parents, our children, our mates. But the safety and protection that all of us need every time we go out the door, and, and for that matter, when we're in our own homes, we still need protection and to, to not to avoid our, our accidents, pray about our jobs, Certainly, as mentioned in our in the, in the sermonette, pray for the things that are have to do with our spiritual growth. That God would help us to overcome, that He would grant us repentance for the things we see that need to be changed. And what about our neighbors and our co-workers, whether they be at in the at headquarters or literal co-workers here, but uh, on our jobs, that pray for those that we know need uh, have, have their trials, maybe just to get along with our co-workers. And for that matter, even pray for our enemies. Do we have, do you have enemies? Uh, someone that you know that actually just doesn't like you and would be out to, out to do you harm? Well, the Bible says that God can even grant us uh, a, a relationship, or let's say, to be at peace even with our enemies. So we can pray for them. The section I would like just one uh, refer to a little bit here. What about praying for your desires? Things you want. You ever pray for something you want? Let's turn over to Psalm 37. I'm sure this is not new to you, but a reminder. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. It says, Trust in the Eternal and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the eternal, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the eternal. Trust also in him and bring it, and he shall bring it to pass. Now you combine verses four and five, it does point out and related back to verse three, which is trust in the eternal and do good, which we pray for these things that we want. And it's okay to pray for those, not to be covetous. We don't pray for things we shouldn't have or things that we simply can't afford, we know are not good for us. But it's okay to have desires. And he says here, delight yourself, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel. And perhaps this is the one of the preeminent examples of this being fulfilled. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we have here the story of Hannah, who was without child, and very fond and very, very, very loved by her husband. But he says in verse 11, because she wanted a child, she said, Then she made a vow and said, O eternal of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, that I will give him to the eternal all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. He's going to be a Levitical Nazarite in that sense. So it's, it does not say, I just want a child. I'm asking for a male child. 
because at that time, of course, not having children was considered an affliction. Behind that example there. So then in verse 20, so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the eternal. So the translation be that so she literally means heard by God. So something she desperately wanted. And it wasn't wrong. And up to that point in her life, she could have said, well, I may never have a child, but I'll pray about it and ask God to give me a son. And in verses 27, 28, just she's talking about it. And she said, for this child I prayed, and the Eternal has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Eternal. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Eternal. And Samuel, of course, is one of those servants of God that find the, the whole story surrounding him is one of the great servants of God out of the Old Testament, out of the Old Covenant account, that is a result of Hannah praying for a desire. And I'm sure all of us remember, easily remember, Mr. Ames talking about getting to go to Israel. I'm not sure I have the number of years in mind, but as I remember, it was either 13 or 17 years. He said he prayed that he would get to go to Israel. Yeah. He did he have to go to Israel? Probably not. But he kept praying anyway. Now, I'm, I don't think that was every day, but he prayed about it for years because he wanted to go to Israel. He wanted that experience. So it's okay to pray for our desires, the right ones and the good ones. A couple of miscellaneous things I'll throw in here. Let's turn over to Luke 21. It's very important, but doesn't fit into any particular category that I put together here. Luke 21, verse 36. It says, watch therefore and pray always. This is on a regular basis, perhaps. Not necessarily every day, but certainly often. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. Very likely in the lives of many of us sitting right here. These things that we read about are going to happen. And so we want to escape them. And to stand, on top of that, a very special edition here, and to stand before the Son of Man, to make it through the end of the age, and qualify for God's kingdom. We pray for that, but also we should be praying that God will deliver us from those trials that are coming. Back in Matthew 24, also talking about this particular time that's coming. Matthew 24, verse 20. When it comes time to go to wherever God is going to protect us, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. One of the scriptures that is a, a proof that the Sabbath is still relevant, and it should be prayed about all along. But don't, we should pray that God will take us there somewhere other than winter time, and that uh, not be on the Sabbath. A little section I would like to devote more attention to 
And I just, uh, my title for it is called Dire Situations. And ideally, you and I stay close to God all the time through regular and very sincere prayer. And yet you and I know, I'm pretty sure that prayer is, it's like faith, you know, which the intensity or the urgency is up here and then it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. Not every day, every prayer is the same. There's no good excuse for prayer ever being tedious or boring. No good excuse for it. But we do know that the energy you and I put into it does vary. So it's very important, especially in dire situations. Let's turn back to Psalm 50. And in reading through all of the Psalms, there are many accounts, obviously, where David especially is writing, and he was having various challenges that uh, he had to go to God in great urgency. But right here in in Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15, let me just see. Verse 14 says, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High, which says we should be obeying God. He writes, Then call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Don't know that everyone here would apply, but not uncommon for us to reach a point where we have might be in the middle of a situation that is a problem that just seems to have no solution whatsoever. We don't know where to turn humanly. We can't see any way out of the dilemma. And yet God says here, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Over in Psalm 102. Similar, similar thought. Psalm 102. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Hear my prayer, O eternal, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. In the day that I call, answer me speedily. There are times our prayers are very, have a great sense of urgency. That we, we joke about this idea, well, I, I need patience. God, please grant me patience and do it right away. Uh, but there are times you and I go to God and ask, you know, you can see the circumstance in my life, and I need a note of encouragement, I need an answer, I need deliverance as soon as possible, still according to your will, but I would sure like for it to be right away. We want God to deliver us because there is a, a concern, major concern in our life. And he says here, in the day that I call, answer me speedily. Nothing wrong in asking that. I know at least when I anoint, and some of you will know this, but when I anoint, I uh, pray that according to God's will, would he answer, would he deliver them promptly? Grant relief, grant healing. 
that's according to his will. We don't, we, we all know that we should ask him according to his will and what's, what's best for us. He knows all of those things. But again, there's nothing wrong in asking. In talking about dire situations, I, I'd have to refer at least back just to be, remind us of Mr. Rod McNair's sermonette last Sabbath in talking about the situation with Esther and the threat of Haman actually out to kill all of the Jews. And that's a pretty dire situation. And after Mordecai had his discussion with Esther, she understood and called for the fast and there were prayers. But that was dire. And there was, it was so dire, it was a three-day fast to ask God to take care of them, but also to humble themselves, which is obviously a major ingredient to going before God. But a couple of examples for this. Let's turn back to Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 19. Second Kings chapter 19, read verses 8 through 10, or skim through 8, 8 through 10. It says, Then Rabshakeh, and goes on, verse 19, again sent messengers to Hezekiah. What are you going to tell him? And he says in there, Do not, in verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. So don't let God play tricks with you or play games with you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Sennacherib was threatening to overcome Jerusalem and conquer conquer Judah. So we find then here is a in verse 14 when he got the message, Hezekiah received the letter, read it, and then he went up to the house of the Eternal and spread it before the Eternal. He took the letter with him, or he took the document with him, and laid it out as if. That God didn't already know what it said, but he, pointed, he just laid it out for him. Here, here's what our enemies are saying about you and what's going to happen to us. But then he says here, O eternal God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So just reminding God, I know you have all power. You are omnipotent. Verse 16, open your eyes, O eternal, and see. Here are the words of Sennacherib. Maybe Hezekiah actually read part of it to him. I don't know. But he says, here are the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Hezekiah realized it was not an approach, a reproach to him, just like David went to fight Goliath. Because Goliath was reproaching the God of Israel. Hezekiah does the same thing here in this particular situation. Verse 19, it says, Now therefore, O eternal, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the eternal God, you alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, 
Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. So there's the response. He said, I've heard you. And then he goes on in verses 30, verse 32, responds. He says, therefore, thus says the eternal concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege bound against it. Not only won't he conquer the city, he won't even shoot an arrow into it. You read the rest of the account. God saw to it that the army didn't even have a chance to attack Jerusalem. So God heard this prayer, and he says here that, we notice what he said here, that Hezekiah received the message, and he went up to the house to the eternal. He went before God in a very special circumstance. He didn't just go in his bedroom. He went up to the house where God would hear him and spread it out, spread out the document before the eternal, poured his heart into that request for deliverance. So those things happen. God hears them. But notice over in chapter 20, at least the indication here is that this was about the same time. Don't know exactly whether it was during during that occurrence or somewhere nearby in terms of time, some adjacent to it. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Now, but so we talk about sometimes when it rains, it pours, or trial upon trial. Well, here are two major trials: one about to be conquered by the uh, Gentile king, but also he can, he's told, "You're going to die." And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Eternal, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Well, the first time Amos came to him, he said, God heard your prayer. It's not going to happen. Sennacherib won't take the city. In this particular case, Amos comes, or uh, Isaiah comes to deliver a wholly different message. In verse 2, then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Eternal, saying, Remember now, O Eternal, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Eternal, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Eternal. And I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. So this again shows it was during that, during that time. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. I have this covenant. I have this responsibility to take, fulfill what I promised to do, bring those things to pass. You can find this account in, in, in more detail over in Isaiah chapter 38, verses 1 through 22, the entire chapter pretty much, where an expanded explanation and, and discussion of what God had done, what God was, how God answered that prayer. But again, a dire situation. And from time to time, we have them. Our members, our, our brethren have very challenging, difficult circumstances. 
And we can go to God and ask for special intervention and deliverance according, as always, according to his will. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 22. Talking about a dire situation, maybe not the best word for it, I don't know, but certainly a difficult time where Christ is praying just before he's arrested and to be crucified. He says, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Obviously, he'd already been praying earnestly. Difficult time at that That evening, that night, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So our prayers at certain times certainly take on a greater intensity, a greater sense of urgency, and we should respond. Situation is urgent, it's dire, it's dangerous, it's critical. We go to God and ask him to please intervene and take care of us. And there's another, in this case, I think those are examples of model prayers. There are, there are a number of them. Obviously, I'm not going to turn to all of them or that many of them. But there are model prayers in the Bible where God's servants prayed to him a certain way in the language they used. We might not, we don't use the King James English necessarily, but certainly the kinds of things they did, the kinds of words they used, or certainly the, uh, the, the topics they discussed are models for our prayers. Let's turn back to Jonah chapter 2. This is a bit different from the other examples because I did read it said where we said pay your vows that you made to God so you, we, we should be obedient and serving God so that when those difficult matters happen that we are close enough to God and we can go to him and we can do like Hezekiah I said look what look I've I've obeyed I've been obeying I've been doing what you want me to do I've been ruling the nation according to your word so intervene for us. Jonah's a little bit different, but nonetheless, the example here of his prayer, I find very, very meaningful and wanted to share that because obviously he has run away from doing God's will and he's been swallowed by the fish in chapter 1. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the eternal, his God, his God from the fish's belly. So he, he knew God. He wasn't, he knew what he was doing. He knew that God wanted him to go to Nineveh. He said, I know you've been swallowed up and the gastric juices are flowing. Uh, I'd say it's pretty dire. <laughs> if I don't get some deliverance here, it's just a matter of time. And he said, I cried out to the eternal because of my affliction and he answered me. Now I'm not a, not that, that much on, on Hebrew per se. But this say here that what I looked up in the commentaries is that this is where he cried out to the eternal. This is a, a general term 
where he was talking out loud to God. And I cried out to the Eternal because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. That's a different Hebrew word. And there the inference is he was yelling. He was screaming. So, yes, pretty dire circumstance. He heard my voice. He said, you out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Literally, you heard my voice. Talking to God, yelling to him. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. So he knew what was going to be the result of what was was happening. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight, out of your favor, out of your, your blessing, your favorable oversight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, that's a rather interesting phrase to me, at least because I'm not sure in the belly of the fish you're swimming around all over if he, if he knew which way was east and north and south. But in his mind, he's praying toward God's temple. He's praying toward the throne of God, something that we can do. We can think about our prayers in the same way, that our, our, our sense of urgency. I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. It's sort of like the, uh, the moorings of the coastal mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O eternal my God. Now, those, those phrases here are those, his characterizations of what it was like to be thrown into the sea, start sinking to the bottom, and imagining all these things by the, by the mountains next to the sea and all the weeds and, and the things that he's, it, it's, they're enveloping him. We have to think we, that's not literal for us and in our lives. But what about the kinds of things that make us, again, wonder sometimes, this problem doesn't have a solution. I can't see any human way for it to get deliverance. So... God, I need special care here. I need intervention. I need something that in my eyes would be miraculous. I need you to take care of me in a very special way at a very dangerous time or difficult time. Verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the eternal and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. They don't. They have no way of getting deliverance, going to an idol. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the eternal. And I think that what he's saying there is that I'll do what you say. Okay, you win. I will, I'll go to Nineveh. Now, we all know the rest of the story. His attitude wasn't always perfect. But, you know, I don't have a choice here. Uh, I'll, you want me to go to Nineveh? I'll go. And uh, salvation is of the eternal. You're the, you're the one who's going to deliver me out of this problem. It's, there is no human way to get out of this fish. I'll do whatever you ask. Just deliver me. So the eternal spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Now, we have to take those words, as I said. We have to take those words and put them 
into our lives, the kinds of things where you and I sometimes have a sense of being hopeless. And we really shouldn't come to feel that way if we have undying, unrelenting faith in God. But because we are human, our faith and our urgency, sense of urgency sometimes will, will vary. But we can turn to God and ask him for special help. And I, I, I think in my own life, and I, and I would assume in yours as well, that I can look back and see there were things done that, that are unexplainable. Uh, I guess tithing for most of us would be one way. You, uh, you don't have the money to pay your bills, but you pay your tithe, and somehow the bills get paid. You can't put it on paper. It doesn't work out mathematically, but somehow there's always enough. And you think, well, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the rent? How, how am I going to put groceries in the, in the kitchen, put, put food on the table? It just isn't enough money here to do that. And yet God has special ways of resolving those problems. And just one, one example that many, many of us have seen in our lives. Uh, personally, uh, I, I wasn't in the church at the time. I was a teenager, but I certainly saw... What my mom experienced, she was uh, she was called into the church, and we didn't have the money at times to pay the bills. And when God called her, she paid a tithe, and she never borrowed another dollar. Can't explain it, but God figured it out and blessed her accordingly. So I, I saw that. That certainly had an effect on me as, 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 a, as a teenager to realize that God can do things that humans can't do. And sometimes you and I have to ask for those kinds of things. Now, there are obviously keys to answered prayer. I talked about faith a moment ago and praying according to God's will. I would just refer you to Mr. Meredith's sermon. You can find it online for the seven keys to answered prayer. And most of us know them, but listen to that sermon again. Can't help but remind us of the kinds of things we need to do in order to have our prayers answered. So going through those prayers, what, what's my point? You're going through the other items just more generally. Let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five, verses six through nine. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. This qualification for being humble requires required for God to hear us. We humble ourselves, recognizing. God's position and God's might, that you may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, the point of all these examples I've been through here, is casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. We can go to God in good times and in difficult times and ask God to take care of these things we need, we want, 
because he loves us. But then then he does remind us along with that. We do have to do our part, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, my adversary, our adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we can understand that God has promised to take care of us. He does love us, but we have to do our part as well. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we do ask, resisting Satan, steadfast in the faith, steadfast in belief that he will do these things that are amazing if we will turn to him and trust him accordingly. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Ephesians 3, verse 20. I'll just refer to it. He said there that we should not be surprised. We pray to him and ask God to take care of us. But he says he's able then to do more than we ask or think. We sometimes ask for certain things. And we get it. We get those things. And so much more because God blesses us for being his servants. If I may, I'll give you a little bit of homework and a model prayer back in 1 Kings chapter 8, rather than go through it. 1 Kings chapter 8, it's a Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And the kinds of things, again, Solomon rehearsed that what God had done for Israel, what God had done for his servant David. And then the kinds of things he asks God to do for him, to help him be the right kind of king. Well, think about our lives, your life. Think about my life. The kinds of things that are so special because we are part of the family of God. We don't have a temple. We are that temple, if you will. We are the family of God. We can ask for his special intervention. So think of this, read this chapter 8 about his Solomon's prayers. And I think I put down here verses 28 all the way through 61 just to refer to them because it's really a, a great model prayer, kinds of things that we can copy in principle and apply them to our lives. So let's turn over to Psalm 62 as we close. Psalm 62, the one verse, Psalm 62, verse 8. The kinds of words here that are part and parcel of a fervent, energetic prayer. Verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He will hear and he will answer. 